0: up the quarter in which I'll be teaching and Brother Billy Higger will begin uh, two Sundays from now with uh, uh, his uh, ne- next session and we'll uh, have the fifth Sunday scheduled this coming Sunday with the uh, deaf uh, ministers and the deaf uh, ministry uh, being featured in that fifth Sunday time uh, There is a uh, folder here that I suppose I'm supposed to mention. Uh, It's concerning the blood drive that is currently going on right outside our door somewhere here from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. today. And uh, uh, nobody has to tell anybody, I think, how important it is for there to be blood available when people need it and what a scarcity there most of the time is. So this is the uh, lifestyle of people that collected particularly for this area, and we're glad to have them on our campus, and uh, if you are able to give blood, then it'll be appreciated not only by the Life South people, but also by whoever receives it in a time of need uh, uh, sometime later. Uh, There's not been a lot of difference, actually, between the primary things that Micah says and the primary things that Amos said that we... uh, referred to in the first part of this this quarter. Uh, They both have a great deal to say about the sins of the rich and powerful uh, in uh, a time of uh, uh, great uh, uh, prosperity, because that's what was going on at the time when both of them uh, wrote. And in this last part of chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, he returns to that same theme that we have seen before, uh, let's read the, the section first, and then we'll comment on it. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. I'm beginning at verse nine in chapter six. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. Can I no longer forget the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that it is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Uh, That's not new to us. Uh, The same charges are made uh, in Amos, where we saw specifically he talked about the the scant uh, measure of the ephah and the larger measure of the shekel, which amounted to the fact that when they brought things in, they received less than they were paying for and paid more than they were supposed to pay for it, being cheated at both ends. That's what the scant measures. that he referred to here uh, did. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And here is following is a perfect uh, picture of uh, an inflationary time, uh, and of how oftentimes people who have ill-gotten gains uh, cannot really enjoy those gains, perhaps because of guilt or other reasons. But you shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I'll give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Uh, None of the work that you do will be of benefit to you. You will not receive the blessings of it. It's interesting how completely reversed that is, of the promises God originally made to the people of God as they entered into this land, if they would be faithful to Him, worship Him, and do His will, uh, they would eat. They would. They would drink the wine from grapes that they had not had to had to grow and uh, and tread out. Uh, they would uh, uh, live in houses they would not had to build. Uh, they would benefit from the work of others as they entered into this new land that God had given them if they would be faithful to him. But if not, then it turns around and they'll not be able to benefit from their own labors. In other places, he specifically mentions that it'll be given to others to enjoy the fruits of your labors and the things that you are doing, and that's, again, because of your sins. Then in the last verse of chapter 6, You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a blessing, so that you may bear the scorn of my people. We don't talk about Omri much, and many Bible students are not particularly familiar with him. Uh, He is the king uh, who uh, gave his wife, who gave his son Ahab to Jezebel uh, as a wife and making alliances with the people of her country. and You know what a catastrophe it was to bring Ahab and Jezebel into the kingship and the ruling of the time. Uh, Ahab appears to be blessed at the beginning because he is a part of the, the more or less faithful line that had come to him. But when he married Jezebel, it was obviously a terrible uh, mistake. And uh, especially when he followed after her and, and her gods. Uh, Omri, if you look at uh, secular history and uh, particularly uh, archaeology, uh, Omri is a much more frequently mentioned uh, king of Israel than, uh, than Ahab is. Uh, we know Ahab mostly because the Bible primarily concentrates on him and on how Jezebel had led him astray and had caused both Ahab and Jezebel, to give the land over to the worship of Baal. But here he reminds us that it's Omri's God, and it was Omri who started that uh, uh, downhill desolation by uh, giving his uh, son Ahab to uh, to, to Jezebel uh, for a husband. You have walked in their counsel, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a blessing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. At the end of the time when... Uh, uh, Ahab and Jezebel had done their work and had brought Baal uh, into the land in a much more uh, pertinent way, uh, desolation came. And uh, that prophesied here and actually took place when Jehu later liberated, not liberated, did away completely <laughs> with uh, the, uh, the house of, of Ahab and and those who worshipped like him. Then in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Micah talks about uh, uh, the sins of the people and enumerates them and declares the famine that's going to come upon the land uh, because of them. Woe is me, he said, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat. No, first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their minds are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, but they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand, put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. You can't even trust your wife is what he's saying there. For uh, the son treats the father with contempt and the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's enemies are the men of his own house. It appears to me at least that uh, Jesus had these verses in mind uh, when he gave a similar warning to uh, Uh, the people of of his day, uh, when he said in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36, uh, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Uh, That's not exactly the same situation that, uh, uh, that Michael was talking about. But uh, it does remind us of a truth that Jesus, while he is the prince of peace and while he came to bring peace and within his kingdom, there is peace. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, Uh, there's no more Jew and Gentile, no more black and white, there's no more male and female, there's no more battles between different uh, classes of people because every class has now become a child of God and a Christian. And that's the main class. And it overrides every other kind of class. And so within the church, within his kingdom, there is a time of of peace and tranquility. But that doesn't mean that that same thing is true outside. And when people become Christians, they're separated then from those who are not Christians. We talk about discrimination a lot. We should, anyway. And uh, uh, discrimination between, uh, as a result of race... Discrimination as a result of wealth, uh, discrimination as a, bo- as a result of any other worldly type thing is uh, sinful. Uh, but that automatically brings a discrimination between children, and between Christians and non Christians, between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the good and the wicked. Uh, there is discrimination in that regard. Uh, I remember an instance when uh, I was president of Magnolia Bible College in Kosciuszko, and Brother Alonzo Welsh, whom you may have heard of, was the longtime director of Sunnybrook Children's Home. And uh, that's when uh, integration first became the law of the land. And places like Mississippi, who had never done anything like that at all, was being forced into it. And for the most part, that was a good thing. However, uh, Brother Welsh began to look to, to decide to begin a a Christian school in connection with his orphanage, particularly for his uh, children that he was looking after as well as for any others who might want to come. And he had to justify that to the authorities and to others. And one of the things he said was, it's a sin to discriminate between black and white and to decide I don't want to go to school with blacks and I don't want my children to go to school with blacks. Uh, that, that, that's completely sinful and outside the will of God. But when you have a group of people in which there is uh, immorality, in which there is uh, no discipline, in which there is no possibility of even teaching well because uh, the, uh, the children uh, sass, the parents, sass the teachers, don't you get away with it, and then nothing else can be done, there is a proper discrimination, he said, between the wicked and the righteous, between the good and the evil. And on that basis, he did begin the Christian school so that he would have a place to send his uh, students where immorality did not uh, reign supreme. Uh, That's not a racial thing. That's simply a a reality of that particular day and and that particular time. So that's still true. There is a uh, distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil. The Bible tells us very clearly that... uh, evil companionships corrupt good morals. That when we uh, uh, give our association and approval uh, to people who are going wrong, it don't be long before we'll be going wrong along with them. And instead we are to maintain a distinction. Uh, using Jesus as an example, uh, this is a sort of a fine point that we need to recognize. Using Jesus as an example, he associated with sinners. He uh, ate with the Gluttons and drank with the, uh, the ate with uh, with the gluttons and drank with the drunkards, and because of that he was accused of being a uh, a glutton and a drunkard. He was not, of course, because he although he associated with them, he did not participate in the sinful activities in which they participated, and therefore he was seating associating with them to seek to change them. One of the things we see is that uh, sometimes when we start out to associate with the, the people who are living the wrong kind of life in order to change them, uh, <coughs> if we're not strong enough, we may end up being changed. I had an example of that when I was teaching at uh, Columbia Christian College in Portland, Oregon. And we had a couple of young men, and they seemed to be very uh, eager. But they also were also obviously not very bright uh, in, in the fullest sense of that term. And, and they were anxious to get with the hippies. That was a sort of thing that was going on at that time, and and, and bring some of them in to uh, to Columbia and, and affect them and cause some of them to become Christians. And uh, that worked for some of them. And in ca- some cases, they uh, uh, did that, and the people came in. They were converted. They became good Christians. And as far as I know to this day, they're still uh, faithful children of God. But there are also some of the. Students at Columbia who went there who ended up more like them than they ended up like the Christians at Columbia. And specifically, two of the students later got kicked out of school for smoking marijuana. And they w- went the wrong direction in their uh, uh, seeking to uh, affect the lives of others by, by their own lives. They simply weren't strong enough uh, to, uh, to, to accomplish that. And that's something we just need to be careful of and need to evaluate ourselves very carefully. Uh, can I associate with people who, who drink and get drunk and not, get, not drink and not get drunk and leave them in a way that turns them off, uh, in, into Christianity and sobriety? Or will I be carried off by them into uh, uh, drinking and, and drunkenness? And uh, that's a, an important distinction. And the Bible warns us about the one and encourage us to do the other. But we need to be like Jesus, and when we participate with the wicked and, and the people who are headed in the wrong direction, to be sure that we don't do what they do, but instead show them a different example and a different life, so that we turn them our way instead of being turned their way. that makes sense? Uh, any comment about all that or any questions? All right. uh, you recognize these sins as the same ones that Amos uh, uh, spoke against. Their hands are on what is evil, chapter 7, verse 3, to do it well. To, what is evil to do it well? The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the greatest of them like a thorn bush. And you can understand that imagery, I think, uh, very well, and and see what uh, uh, the prophet is talking about. Uh, And then reminding us that uh, we need to, in that situation, be be careful to know that the closest people to us may be the ones that are leading us astray if we don't uh, pay careful attention to what God wants us to do and how he wants us to be. In verse 7, as for me, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. So that's the solution to all of that. Instead of uh, going after the the people of the world whom we are associating with, instead uh, wait for the Lord and then do his will. What does it mean to uh, wait for God? We sing a lot about that. There's a song that I like real well that... uh, they that wait upon the Lord, shall renew their strength like eagles. <coughs> <coughs> to wait upon the Lord, it seems to me, means specifically to trust him, uh, that he will do his will, even if it doesn't happen right immediately. Uh, we pray sometimes. And what we pray for doesn't happen the next day. But waiting upon the Lord means that we uh, patiently wait for it to ultimately be done and believing that it will be done if it's according to his will, that uh, uh, what we ask for will be given, that his intervention into our lives, in whatever way it may come, uh, will take place, uh, and to be trusting in him, to be sure that, uh, that it all will. I think that's what waiting upon the Lord uh, seems to indicate. And uh, I wait upon the Lord and wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. And then he turns to uh, his enemies and addresses them. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will hear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring us out into the light, and I will look upon his vindication. Uh, That's still part of the waiting upon the Lord. When we wait upon the Lord. We wait for Him to act, and before long, uh, before it's too late, He He does act, and we see, and the enemy sees that uh, He has been faithful, and He kept His word, and has done what He said that He would do, and uh, that way we can rejoice over the enemy instead of the enemy uh, rejoicing over us. Verse ten: Then the enemy will see, and shame will cover. Her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look down upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Interestingly, he uses she there. and That indicates, I think, that he's he's talking about a a city that will bring uh, destruction to him. We've already noted in previous verses that Micah was the first prophet to actually name Babylon as the uh, uh, nation that would conquer Judah and carry them away into exile. Uh, other prophets had talked about Assyria uh, taking Israel away and carrying them into captive, but uh, uh, later it was the nation of Babylon that carried Judah away into captivity, and as we saw back earlier, uh, Micah was the first one to identify Babylon by name. I think that's who the, she is that he's talking about here, the nation, that the city that will come against them and be the uh, enemy that he is talking about. And ultimately, God himself will will conquer them. Uh, I think I've mentioned Habakkuk before, but it's, it's such a good thing that you can't mention, I think, too often. Uh... Habakkuk is a very short prophecy. And uh, in it, Habakkuk looks at the wickedness among God's own people, Habakkuk's own people, and asks the question, how long, Lord, are you going to put up with all this wickedness among your people? And then God says, I'm going to work a work that you won't believe. And I'm going to punish this people, and I'm going to do it by the Chaldeans. That's another word for the Babylonians. and uh, and, and you'll be amazed at how I've done that. And then Habakkuk said, Lord, how can that be? How can you punish your people with a people that's more wicked than they are? And he said, well, when that's all over, I will punish them as well. And in other prophecies, he mentioned, it's mentioned that the Medes and the Persians then would punish, punish Babylon. And all that happened historically, uh, just as the prophets before had said that it would. prophets all the way going back, by the way, not naming the countries, but going back to Daniel chapter 2 and the vision that he saw of the four world empires. (coughs) As each empire, one after another, fell uh, because uh, they did not honor God. And then in the days of the fourth empire, that's the Roman Empire, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom which would never be destroyed. And his church would come, and that kingdom, separate from the world's kingdoms, would uh, be a blessing uh, to the world. And uh, in, in all of that, uh, he's He's saying that God providence and God's work overcomes the wickedness and evil of the world. We may not see it at the time when uh, <coughs> Babylon is more wicked than <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, when Babylon is more wicked than Judah uh, comes to uh, uh, conquer Judah to punish Judah for her sins, then they wonder how that goes. But then there's another nation that comes back to punish Babylon for her sins and God's justice uh, always is ultimately vindicated and we see that how it uh, makes a, a the prophecy of God come true. That no nation can ultimately turn away from God and uh, expect to prosper. You heard what I said. No nation can expect to turn away from God Expect to prosper. Does that in any way frighten you? It does me. Uh, I don't. I see much of our nation, much of the, many of the leaders of our nation, uh, turning opposite ways from God. And I remember that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, The only hope I see is people I'm looking at right now in this auditorium. Uh, Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Well, the first answer surely would be because of their uh, wickedness, their what we call sodomy, their homosexuality, and actually their homosexual rape of people who came their way. Uh, That certainly was a reason, and and the Bible gives that as a reason. Over in Ezekiel, as we've looked at before, uh, there are passages that also mention the same sins that he talks about here of uh, the people of uh, Judah and Israel who uh, uh, mistreated the poor, cheated the widows and the orphans, cared not for them, and didn't try to help them at all. Uh, that was another reason for their downfall. But I think you and I can think of another. Because if you remember... God began to uh, Abraham began to bargain with God. Abraham said, "Lord, I know Sodom is wicked, I know it needs to be destroyed, but suppose there were ten there were fifty righteous people in that city, would you destroy the fifty righteous people along with the wicked in order to destroy the wicked? God very quickly said, "No, if there are fifty righteous people in the city, I will spare the cities." for the sake of the fifty righteous. And then Abraham began to bargain a bit. Suppose it lacks five. Suppose it's just forty-five. Suppose it's just forty. All the way down to ten. And he kept bargaining with God, and God kept agreeing with him, and God kept accepting his conditions, finally saying, if there are as many as ten righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will, I will spare the city for the sake of the ten righteous. But one reason, again, why i uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but because there were not ten righteous people to be found within her. Uh, You may be down to Lot alone, Uh, certainly only of Lot and his uh, two daughters. Uh, His wife escaped the city, but immediately disobeyed God and looked back and longed for the place she was leaving instead of the place she was going, and was turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, There was obviously a uh, disconnect there so I don't think we can count her. Perhaps the two daughters were although they didn't act righteously in in, in the future. Uh, to be honest with you this whole section and the part about uh, Lot that's talked about in Second Peter it, it is amazing to me. Uh, it reminds me of how important my attempts to judge others. would be Based on what I'm told about Lot, I don't find very much to calculate that he is in among the righteous and that uh, he was anything like what he ought to be. But if you remember, the Holy Spirit says through Peter that he uh, vexed his righteous soul over the unrighteous deeds that they were doing and uh, uh, spent his days uh, in, in Contemplating the wickedness, and then trying to not be a part of it, uh, I would—I don't see that, but I accept that because God said that in Scripture, and that reminds me that I need to be careful about my judgment because God knows things I don't know, and uh, uh, I can—I can miss it pretty badly, and probably when I start to do so on the basis of what I see, I most of the time probably do miss it uh, pretty badly, but at least Lot was one righteous. And that's all there were, as far as I can tell. At least no more than three. They did not find ten. That that gives me hope for our country. I know that there are more than ten righteous in in this nation. I feel like many of them are right here in this auditorium uh, this morning. And then that gives me hope that perhaps may God may be looking for a certain number of Christian righteous people who serve as a sort of a catalyst. Uh, to uh, preserve the rest of the nation. And perhaps, at least, he may not destroy this country as long as there is a core of righteous people in his kingdom as a part of this nation who are seeking to do right and seeking to lead others to do right. And I pray at least that that's the case, and this is at least an indication that it might be the case. And uh, that reminds me that uh, while along with you, uh, I rejoice when a president is right, is uh, elected who seems to do more in the path of righteousness. I rejoice when our long so our uh, armed services are strengthened, and uh, we have more uh, people to guard against uh, the outside forces of evil, and more uh, uh, machinery, uh, tanks and guns and planes and bombs to uh, help uh, defeat the enemy. I'm I'm certainly for that. But I also know, in the long run, that's not going to save this nation. In the long run, we're not going to save it at the ballot box. In the long run, we'll save it if we do by being the kind of child of God that God looks for when he looks for righteous people in, in a city and in a nation. And I pray that all of us will be motivated by that realization that while there are many, many things that many people do to uh, assist this nation to be righteous and assist it to stand against its enemies, the most significant and important thing that anybody can do is to simply be a faithful child of God, day by day in their lives, being faithful to their spouses, uh, loving the Lord, uh, doing good to the people who are in need, helping the widow and the orphan, being sure we don't cheat people in the, business deals that we do, and all the other ways to, uh, to walk in righteousness instead of in wickedness and, and selfishness. And, and that is the best way and the most certain way that any of us can end up uh, helping rest- restore this nation and helping keep it from being defeated by, by its enemies. Then my enemy shall see, this is verse 10, then my enemy shall see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now, she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Now, ultimately, the righteous will triumph, and even the wicked will recognize that it has happened. Verse 13, a day, no, verse 11, a day for the building of her walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended, In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. He speaks directly to God and says, Shepherd your people with your staff, with the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Your people seem to be alone uh, and yet... We can know that we're not alone, because God is with us and is shepherding us. Uh, let them gra- graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. Those were nations of Israel, that uh, uh, the nations that the Babylonians and Assyrians conquered, but uh, did not uh, keep, because God brought them back uh, to their land. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Uh, the children of Israel uh, did do that. And after they were uh, conquered and allowed to turn to their land, Uh, They returned to the Lord, not perfectly, but a great many of them did, and enough of them did to where the uh, messianic age uh, came into being. I think you'll find among all the prophets that after uh, they pretty well pronounced doom on uh, uh, the things that are going to come to pass because of their sins, that uh, they end up with a message of hope that enters into not only hope for immediate historical things, but also hope that intermingles with the promises of the Messiah and, and the Lord that is, that is to come. Uh, who is God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Remember, the remnant is that group of uh, uh, God's people who have remained faithful even in the midst of unfaithfulness by a great many others. Uh, we talked about the remnant a good bit, and that's a very prominent book, prominent sub- subject in, in the Old Testament in particular. And it's brought over into the New Testament. It is that remnant that God looks back to whom we follow and whom we are the uh, inheritance of, whom we are the followers of in order to receive the blessings that they also would, would receive. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not return his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have shown to our fathers from the days of old. <coughs> this is a rejoicing over the attribute of God that causes Him to remain faithful uh, to His people when we are in any way really faithful to Him, uh, the version I'm reading is the American King, is the English Standard Version, very similar to the Older Revised Standard Version, and you see in it every once in a while the word "stead," the phrase "steadfast love." Uh, that particular phrase uh, always translates a particular word from uh, the Old Testament, from the Hebrew language. The word in Hebrew is something like kesed. Uh Many people have called it the agape of the Old Testament. Uh, agape being the New Testament word for the, the kind of love that God had for us when he gave his son to die for us in spite of the fact that we were not deserving of it. <coughs> and that's a, a misnomer to the degree that it's not exactly the same meaning but it is, serves a similar purpose in the Old Testament to the New. Uh, It's a word that basically, the word steadfast love is a good translation. Um, Older versions, King James in particular, are translated in many different ways. Sometimes it's loving kindness, sometimes it's mercy, uh, sometimes other similar phrases are used. And I like the uh, English Standard Version, among other reasons, because It always uses the same word for that important word. You can always tell then what that word is and what word it stands behind this uh, statement of God's steadfast love. Taking all the passages that uh, use this word, looking at the meaning overall, it seems obvious that the basic meaning of the term is the love of God that causes him to remain faithful to his side of the covenant, even when his people break their side of the covenant. And to stand with them a lot longer than uh, one would normally think if you were simply to look at at the way covenants work in general. Generally, a covenant is a two-sided agreement. And if uh, one person breaks their side, then that releases the other from their side. And that's uh, normally the case and would be the case here with the covenants of God, except for God's steadfast love. And we'll see, and if you look at this word throughout uh, Old Testament usage, you will see, among other things, that uh, it talks about his steadfast love being the reason why he made promises to David, and even though his people later turned away from him, he continued to keep his promise to David as a result of his steadfast love. It's the uh, quality of God that causes him to remain faithful to His promises, even when his people are not faithful to theirs. There's nothing to say that there's no limit to that. Obviously, there are several passages that show that ultimately there is a limit beyond which God will not go. But for a long time, he is faithful. And that's the point that's being made here. Who is a God like you, punishing iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He did not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. You'll again have compassion on us and will tread our iniquities under feet. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Uh, There are many passages in the the Old Testament (coughs) that talk about God removing our sins from us in in a very dramatic way. One psalm says that he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And uh, they are drowned and gone and and no more to uh, uh, torment us. Uh, Another passage says as far as the east is from the west. So far has our father removed our sins from us. So uh, we have in the New Testament the promise that God forgives our iniquity and remembers our sins no more. But there are similar passages, not similar promises, not exactly the same. But similar promises in the Old Testament, where he talks about removing our sins so far from us that they will never have an effect upon us uh, again. And that's a promise that we can uh, remember and and, and keep uh, for ourselves. Um, The Jews especially appreciated this, those who understood it, and those who were part of the righteous remnant uh, to whom it, it applied were grateful for the fact that although they realized they had sinned, they also realized that uh, God had not cut off His uh, blessings from them or turned His face completely away, and that's something we as Christians have an even greater confidence in, <coughs> because as a result of our of Jesus Christ and His death upon the cross, we have in Him a more complete removal that once they're removed, never come back. Uh, and that's a great blessing that the Old Testament didn't have, but there were similar types of promises to the faithful, to the remnant uh, of the people of God in the Old Testament that would keep them in, uh, in covenant relationship with God as a result of promises he had made even though they hadn't kept their side of the promise uh, completely. Uh, so that's what steadfast love is all about. And... Uh, as you see that word in, in the Bible, just sort of note that and remember it's a special Old Testament word about a special characteristic of God that all of us can appreciate. If there wasn't such thing as agape love in the New Testament and uh, steadfast love in the Old Testament, uh, we would all be lost forever because once we had sinned, uh, we'd be gone. But God loves us we continue to be faithful to him, we continue to trust him, the basic idea is trusting him, have faith in him, then uh, uh, we will be blessed, uh, even though we don't always live up entirely to our side of the covenant. Any comment about that? Any comment about that, a question about that? Yes. That's good, yeah. Uh, I hope you could hear what uh, Larry was saying. Uh, What is is true about waiting on the Lord is the Lord may not always come when we want him to, but he'll always be on time. And uh, his own time will be the right time time. in uh, in every instance. That's a good point, and thank you for bringing that up. Any other comment or question by anybody? I enjoyed the quarter. Look forward to another time to come in later times but we'll also enjoy the rest for a quarter or so. God bless you.